Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Bader at the Centre for Global Development in Europe. My guest today is Bob Geldof, the singer, songwriter, author and anti-poverty campaigner. In this podcast, Bob talks about his current work promoting investment and jobs in Africa through a private equity company. And we look back at Band Aid, Live Aid and the Glen Eagles Summit. Bob addresses with characteristic robustness those critics who say that Band-Aid focused too much on Africa's problems and those who say that charity is not enough. This podcast presents the highlights of a longer interview, which is also available as a Development Drums podcast. So if you want to listen to the full interview, you might want to switch to that now. Bob Geldof became famous as the lead singer of the Irish rock band The Boomtown Rats in the late 1970s and 1980s, and he starred in Pink Floyd's 1982 film The Wall. But it's as an anti-poverty campaigner that he'll be best known to listeners of this podcast. In 1984, he and Mid brought together a group of musicians under the name Band-Aid, which recorded a hit single, Do They Know It's Christmas, to raise money for famine relief in Ethiopia. They went on to organise the Live Aid concerts in 1985. Since then, Bob Geldof has remained closely involved in campaigning against poverty. I met him in London to talk about his work. Bob Geldof, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Thanks, Owen. So you're a regular visitor to Africa, and Mm. I've heard you talk recently with a certain passion about Africa today Mm. as being very different from Africa of 25 years ago. Tell us what you're seeing and how you see Africa now. Well, I don't see any difference in the dynamism of the people. It's just that it's been able to be realised, and that's the excitement, really. Um, If you're engaged in sort of humanitarian stuff, the excitement, if that's the correct word, is um, being able people to stay alive and advance perhaps the the lives of their children um, through better health or education or stuff. Uh, today it's almost like in the, in the time that I've been doing it those children are of age and now there's something else so I remember speaking to a, an Ethiopian father up in the highlands and saying why don't you send the boy to school and um, he said what for and I said um, so he can learn he said what for and I said so he can be educated and you know develop himself as a human and get a job and he said what job where and that's less tricky a question to answer today and that becomes very exciting then for the possibility of that same child so you're seeing jobs and economic growth across africa is this just not across it but um it's it has a critical mass now you would see it in spots Mm -hmm. and inevitably it'd be the resource spots the commodity spots the extractive spots um, but you're seeing now sort of critical mass occurring regionally. And, of course, when we talk regionally in Africa, uh, and I know people listening to this are development buffs, but just bear in mind because you forget, when you talk regionally, you are talking about vast spaces of the earth. You know, I mean, just the horn is basically the size of India. And so when you say regionally, I mean, it's big stuff. And you're involved in this organisation, Eight Miles. Mm, it's not an organisation, it's a company. It's a company, mm. okay. And what does it do? 
It's um, it's a private equity company um, investing in Africa. So here are the PE riffs that you don't know. It's pansectoral and opportunistic, which means that it's uh, all of Africa can be taken into account if there's an opportunity. Um, and it's pansectoral, which means it's not just telecommunications or agribusiness or something. What it isn't is extractives. We won't do extractives, mainly because it's messy. And um, anyway, there's far bigger fish in there than us. Um, but there's no need to get engaged in that anyway, um, because it's the other sectors that uh, require development. And, it, and it's in the other sectors where you get jobs. And that's what interests me next. And sort of if you want Bob's big adventure in Africa, the next part is jobs. If you'd said that to me in 1985, I would have looked at you like you were mad. And to what extent do you think this is going to replace over time the need for us to be giving aid and other kinds of concessional money to Africa? Over time it will completely replace it, but right now the two are absolutely critical and you couldn't have got to this point without aid and you won't get further without aid. Aid is the best spend. And 8 Miles is investing in businesses in in that gap? In, in that gap. In I that mean, gap. typically what? a 15 to £25 million pound investment. Um, and there are a number of those companies beginning to get traction now. And for me, as I say, the thing is, where, where can you, you know, invest in a, in a local national company that um, you know, will create even further jobs, um, but also you know, with proper labour laws, not just national, but international labour standards? So we're going to come back to Africa today, to development policy today, but I, I want to um, go back. As yeah. You've been talking about Band-Aid and Live Aid. Mm. And just, I mean, you, you, know, you, you became famous for your engagement in Ethiopia when yeah. you put together, as you say, this, uh, well, originally the, the record. Mm. Um, looking back, was that, was that un- the right thing to do? Is there something you would have done differently if you'd known then what you know now? no. Um, I'd have done exactly the same um, because it's very hard, I'm sure, for people. Uh, I'm old now, but 84 was 30 years ago, nearly 28 years ago. Um, it's a lifetime away. Um, so the only awareness of Africa was Save the Children, Oxfam, mm. the usual, you know, coup d'etat, etc. And uh, that was, if it was ever. Uh, addressed by the media it was in that context mm. um, and so in that context you know when I saw the uh, report uh, Michael Burke's BBC report um, it was a response to that probably as I've said a million times to do with um, the season of the year mm. uh, the fact of my own personal situation at home the first the fact of you know my career situation which meant i was at home i mean if you're a happening band you just simply aren't at home you've got mm. you know the market is the world sort of thing so you're out there doing whatever recording uh, playing uh, interviews whatever i was at home and uh, so possibly all of that anyway but mainly mainly the fact is it was sickening i mean that's the truth. If it came on now, I doubt if there'd be even the slightest change in people's reaction to it. So if people would respond the same today as they did in 84, why would I respond any differently? And so all I could do was what I knew what to do, write tunes. 
and being unsure about my ability now at this point in my career, I, uh, I got my friend who just had a big hit, um, Vienna, with Ultravox. And, um, and using the 10 years in rock and roll where, you know, we were top dogs for amongst with the others, I called up friends. Again, like, again, it's that thing I said that the rats doing a Christmas record, it may have dribbled I'd, in. I'd have bought it. But. I know, you know, you, are, you were our only fan. <laughs> what do you say to people who accuse... Uh, not just you, but that period of perpetuating an image of Africa, the, the begging bowl image, and you know the needy, uh, the, you know the, the, the kid with flies in his eyes. Mm. Um, there are people who say, well, you know these celebrities, these campaigns. They, I mean, they would probably bracket you with Save the Children and Oxfam and so mm. on as people who were concerned to raise money for a good motive, mm. but in so doing, created an image of Africa that makes it harder, for example, for people to do what you're doing now, which is raising investment, seeing Africa as a business opportunity? Oh, well, they're, they're, they're chronically naive. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I can understand Africans getting miffed about it because they're proud of their country or continent and they're bedeviled by the fact that when they speak to people, people always say, oh, God, you come from there, you poor thing. Is it not awful? You know, and um, so you could understand it. But the truth is that was the reality. Right. And it's still the reality, disgracefully. And I still get, um, well, if you remember from that period, it was anger Mm. and shame. Mm. And that was good because that seemed to be what people felt who saw that program. So that program was the time of the um, uh, monomedia, if you like. Everyone watched the six o'clock news Mm. on ITV or BBC. That was it. That was your choice. And most people watched the news on BBC. Uh, So I sort of forgot that the whole country saw it. So um, blame the bloody BBC or Michael Burke for discovering, just stumbling into these 350,000 people in Quorum, and God bless him mm. for understanding what this was. And if you, I remember perfectly the sound of his voice, his rage. Mm. Forget this journalistic um, objectivity. Forget Mo Amin not zeroing in on this, this, this horror. Well done them. Looking back, um, the money that Band-Aid raised, um, the BBC made this accusation, which um, I think is worth getting on the table, that some of the money that was raised for the Ethiopian famine, not by Band-Aid, but by other people, Mm. was used in some way to finance or support the civil war and the armies on both sides. Mm. And when they made that allegation, they they, um, implied that uh, that Band-Aid money was connected with that. How confident are you that, A, that Band-Aid money was never um, siphoned off in the way they suggested, and B, that the other money that was raised uh, in, for Ethiopia was, was never siphoned off or abused? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm so confident um, of the fact that not a single cent of Band-Aid money went anywhere but to um, the intended recipients, so much so that... Um, uh, we were quite prepared to take the BBC on in the High Court. And remember, the trustees of Band-Aid, we spent, so far this year, we've spent £3,000 a day on recipients in Africa, still, 28 mm. years later. Same trustees, incredible guys. Um, 
Where, uh, where's that money coming from? Uh, it's, still- it's still from DVDs or from covenanted wages okay. or from wills. Okay. Or, for example, last year, Glee, you know, the thing mm-hmm. they did, do they know it's Christmas? So instantly the downloads were huge. I mean, who'd have thought? Right. I mean, you know, I thought we'd make 100 grand and I'd get out of there, you know. I mean, 28 years later, we're spending more than ever I intended, you know, but great. And it is, it is the source of the greatest satisfaction. You know, because it's it's tangible. This, yeah. you know, you absolutely clearly I- improve that person's life. That clear, that's cool. Um, but uh, um, the BBC, like, we just wouldn't let it go. I mean, this is this this is the corollary of your thing about people um, think that you perpetuate the idea of Africa as as on its knees. It was, hmm. and there are areas which are still um, endemic to uh, drought, um, war, um, and uh, the resulting chaos in people's lives. And so that will need to continue, but um, until such time as uh, things stabilise. But um, So it's not Bob Geldof perpetuating this thing, it's Bob Geldof responding to it. And because of that, because of myself and Bono and stuff like that, we get criticised then for doing it. But if you saw the recent series, the White Poverty series, I don't think it would have been a series or even a week of poverty had Bono and I not agreed to do the film that started it. So, you know, we're in a... We're stuck. Mm. Um, And uh, um, the BBC... And this goes to the whole mess that's in the BBC now, their journalistic standards, because of the web, because of the net, because a lot of what they're doing is now being done extra-curricular, if you like. Um, The panic in the tabloids is that they move to illegality and subverting, in fact, the state by bribing officials and, and things. So that's the tabloids. The BBC, though, dude, you're on whole other levels of, of credibility and journalistic rectitude. And in amongst the BBC, the paragon of that must be the World Service. I've literally, literally sat in basements in Eastern Europe during the communist period and watched people tune in to the Romanian service, etc., to get the truth. I've seen rebels in Africa, different sides, tuning in to their World Service to get what they believe is the reality of the situation, to have the World Service use the showbiz bling of Band-Aid to draw attention to a problem that may or may not have existed was too much because the whole thing was sold on the fact that it was us involved. It wasn't. And, you know, the guy kind of makes it clear. And he could have spoke to me and he didn't. And so this whole mess happened and we went ballistic because a lot of people trusted us quite Mm. rightly and we've never betrayed that trust so the trustees went ballistic wrong crowd of people to take on they're hardcore one was the chairman of the bbc the controller of the bbc the chairman of itv and the chairman of channel four i you shouldn't take on the height of your profession so the end result was of course they were wrong it was a nonsense it was a fabrication and the bbc had to apologize to us uniquely uniquely in its history, across all networks, all foreign networks, and on every news broadcast. 
Do you uh, think it did lasting damage? Do you think people... Do, you know? I don't think it did lasting damage to us, because, but it did some damage to them. I mean, to mm. the World Service in particular. I mean, I found out things I didn't know. I mean, the first thing they tried to say was, it's nothing to do with us because the Foreign Services, con- or the, the, the World Service is controlled by the Foreign Office. That was news to me. I didn't mm. know that. So we had to sue the Foreign Office. But you can't sue the Foreign Office. So Mark Thompson was trying to push it off on them. Then I got a letter saying that this was robust journalism, to which we answered with pages of documents from the from the officials who were there at the time, the British ambassador, the American ambassador, the woman who's Barack Obama's African advisor, who was an independent monitor and who rode the Band-Aid trucks. You know, all these people, all these experts, you know, like Ken said, this is absolute nonsense now. With regard to the other people, I don't know and I can't speak for them. You know, I really can't. I, I didn't see it. You, did, you didn't see money being siphoned off. No, I didn't. And like, um, so how it, how it couldn't work with Band Aid is we had our own ships. Mm. I mean, the BBC filmed them endlessly. We had our own trucks. We had our own jeeps. And what really sickened me was that we had drivers killed during the war. I mean, you're in the middle mm. of the the, mm. war, the, mm. the longest running mm. war of the mm. 20th century. We had our dri- our drivers killed in our trucks trying to get food to them. So how does suddenly this stuff get to pay for arms? It was absolutely disgraceful. And uh, I can't answer for the others, you know, but, uh, you know, but I never saw anything like that. But maybe, who knows? You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, and these are the highlights of an interview with anti-poverty campaigner Bob Geldof. The full interview is also available as a Development Drums podcast. If you enjoy Development Drums, you may also enjoy another podcast from the Centre for Global Development, the Global Prosperity Wonkcast, which is a snappier summary of some of our development policy work. You can subscribe to both Development Drums and the Global Prosperity Wonkcast on iTunes, or you can find them on our website at www.cgdev.org. The Guardian newspaper also has a monthly podcast on development. Before we move on to uh, the future of development policy, let's quickly touch on Make Poverty History in 2005. Um, You, uh, I think, set the agenda pretty much for the Glen Eagle Summit, working with people like Tony Blair Mm. and with officials in the government. Mm. And famously afterwards, you said that it had been a great success. Mm -hmm. Looking back, do you you feel that you might have um, overstated the success of 2005? No. no? In fact, I think I, I, I couldn't have known then, but I probably understated it. Um, the turning point, the real turning point, or as Kofi Annan called it, the Rubicon crossing moment, was the Glen Eagle Summit. Um, that's when, that's when I think, and I've actually written this recently, the world took Africa seriously for the very first time. The Commission for Africa is, I mean, for me, it's a big thing. As I've said, boringly, it's one of the very few things I'm proud of having been involved in. Um, but it did strip out. What needed to happen in Africa? Why did it remain outside the global economic well-being? Why? There must be a reason. These are empirical things. And it drilled down into this with very, very clever people. Now, Blair threw me the sop of culture. But culture is really important, as Amartya Sen 
you know, says the Nobel economist, like you can't have development without culture. And I spoke to, um, who was it, Anthony, the guy who wrote the Brandt report. So I sold it to Blair on, uh, Brandt was wrong because it never, Brandt, didn't work because it was never implemented. It was just shelved. We're going to go forward with this. And he agreed. And he said, well, I'll do the politics, you do the public. Okay. And um, so, you know, going through it on, on that section, I mean, I spent a year going around setting up, um, you know, different sort of forums in, in, in different countries and trawling through Africa. Very interesting. Anyway, I think it's a good report. And then... Um, but the other leaders didn't want to do any of its recommendations, double aid, cancel debt. They didn't want to do that. So something had to be done to force them. Now, um, Make Poverty History was already, I think that was Richard Curtis's um, overarching name for basically the cooperation of all the NGOs. I just can't... You know, I, I stay outside that loop because things happen very slowly with 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 all the NGOs. You know, like it's very bureaucratic, and it's, and I'm not, and it's sort of you know I get very impa- I'm chronically impatient to everyone's annoyance, and I'm also likely to say things that will embarrass them, and I don't want them to be embarrassed, and I'm also likely to disagree with them in public, uh, like you know. So that's it. I'm a pain for them and they're a pain for me so they'd organized make poverty history and um as it became clearer and clearer and clearer that this was no threat whatsoever to the leaders of uh, the ga none whatsoever they'd never heard of it they couldn't care less because in reality and i know adrian lovett who now works for one i mean he sort of agrees with me but the great thing about mph was that everyone believed it did exist and it did exist in this country, in Britain, which is consistently behind this agenda, almost to a person in this country. If you argue with them, they'd say, yeah, what the hell? And that's led to consistent uh, political policy, and the consistency of policy lends results, as we can see today. But back then, I just thought, you know, what's the focus of MPH? Where's its end object? And the end object was a march. I don't believe that. You can walk around Trafalgar Square singing, we shall overcome till you're blue in the face. You ain't going to do it. Where's the practice? Where do you bring real, um, terrible word, people power, public power to bear? You put a million people on the streets of a capital city. That's what you do on the day. So, you know, I really didn't want to do Live Aid because Live Aid was in people's minds... Not in mine, because I never really got that, but the, a very romantic moment. I mean, you know, that's there was this sense of the country acting as one, people as one. You know, at the Olympics this year, um, the Times said there's been three great unifying moments in the country. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, um, Live Aid, and the Olympics. Not bad. That isn't what I intended, but fantastic, you know. And... Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't think you could. You can't go back. Um, but Bono and Richard were insistent that we do it. By we, I meant I, because I said, "Well, you're so up on it, you do it." I said, "Oh man, I've got an album to do." And Richard had a film. He said, "Well, fuck off." You know, what about me? Sort of, because you know he's the megastar. I'm the pop singer, sort of thing, which is true. You know, and uh, but the agenda, but the agenda for 2005 was debt, aid, and trade. Mm. And no, it wasn't. Was Again, this is a this is a cardinal mistake. It was debt 
and aid. Trade specifically till Blair was blue in the face. It was never on the agenda. He said, if it's possible, I will bring it up, but it's not going to be possible because the Doha round is taking place in three weeks' time. I think it was Hong Kong or Singapore, and the leaders will not discuss trade when they're going on to do that there. It was debt and aid. That's your. It was debt and aid. But I'm, I'm interested in how you balance being um, uh, disruptive and being at the table with the agents of change, the democratically elected government. Because governments. you're disruptive with the agents of change. But it's hard to be both, isn't no. it? Because you don't get invited to the table if you're genuinely disruptive. And do, do you, did you ever feel a bit co-opted? That's a very good question. You get invited if you've got something to say and you get invited if they can trust you. Um, and if they think you know what you're on about. And that's a really good question. What what we haven't succeeded in doing yet is challenging some of the more um, systematic ways in which rich countries affect poor countries. The migration rules, the way our companies behave, the corruption, the you know the, those kinds of issues. Yeah, but we're doing mean, we're doing something kind of nice and pretty but every, to, to raise some money. About but, that since day one. I mean, this is hard. Well, what progress know, have we did. made? What progress has the campaigning that you've done made on those issues? I I would argue a lot. I mean, you know, as we speak, uh, the extractive industries transparency, Transparency International, started by Peter Eigen, and he was chair of EITI. I mean, if you if you talk to Peter, I was with Peter two days ago in Geneva. If you talked to him and said that uh, the Dodd Frank Act, the Luger. Mm part of that um, was going to happen almost as he suggested it should 25 years ago he'd have this is this is the requirement just so that people know that companies pub- publish, publish what they pay what they pay and on a project by project basis which is critical right. so institutionally you are literally affecting vast areas of the economy and if you do not publish what you pay on a project by project basis dude you can't list on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, in terms We've made no progress thing, on the trade rules, really. In the there last hasn't. Years. I mean, but like, you know, Doha has been a bust. Hmm. And I don't know how many times I have to say it. And it becomes even, I mean, it doesn't matter whether I say it, but I'm just sick of saying it for, you know, since Doha, Monterey and all the rest of it. And until such time as we take down the CAP and the Farm Bill and all the onerous protectionist uh, treaties. I mean, you know, really the EU is a cartel. It's, a, it's a, You know, I mean, it is protectionism but of the end. I, I mean, want to push you on the idea that those issues, which you are rightly passionate about, somehow get crowded out by the image of um, we're going to raise some money through Make Poverty History or through Live Aid and so on, and we're going to give no, money to people. No, but that's people. wrong. Again, you're, you're, you're playing that trick. We raised money through Live Aid. Through Make Poverty History, we raised the issues. And so that's the key difference. Live Aid, we needed to get money instantly and to draw attention to the potential death of 30 million people. Now, dude, even now, if you ask me, Bob, number one, should we immediately start stripping down the institutions or should we instantly try and stop 30 million? Well, the first thing is to stop the 30 million.
So we've now got uh, 2013, the UK once again takes the chair of the G8, mm. um, I think for the first time since 2005. Mm. If you were advising, as I'm sure you are, if you're advising people in number 10, what should the G8 focus on in 2013? I'm not advising because like, I, I can't advise, I'm not expert enough. What I will go in and, and say is there's the, there's the ability, you know, I mean... There's the, you know, if I saw these guys at the very beginning, there was no guidance. I, you know, I just bust these things. So I'd go and see a leader, and I'd have a list of eight things, and I'd make sure that people know I was seeing an advisor. Mm. So post live edits, rah rah rah. So the media are going to come. Five of them were impossible, but I wanted them. Two were viable but difficult. One was a certainty. They had to give me something. Okay. That, that sounds like big-headed, mm. please. It was nothing to do with me. It was to do with the profile and the fact the media were outside the door. And um, so you'd get something from all of these meetings. And that's the thing. You must get something from them. So or what, else what's the point? What's your list of eight for... Two, for, for I don't have a list of eight. Certainly the, the, the need now is to get the British government over the line with the 0.7 um, right. agreement. This will be... Historic. I mean, mm. genuinely, for people who are listening to this, you know, and maybe you've passed on already assuming that we're going to get the positive, but think about it. In the worst economic time, this government, of all governments, is holding their feet to the fire. We've got to get them over that line in the face of massive attacks from um, people who argue emotionally mm. Mm. rather than practically. There is no question that for Britain, this consistency is the best use they've ever had of soft power. And you alter the institutions that are being built in Africa, and really Africa needs institutions, because you cannot get coherence in a state without the institutions. But you will not get institutions if the state is weak. Mm. Institutions often are organic unto themselves, the law takes place around what society is doing, and institutions form around that. Whether do you, it's the do you ever worry that, that foreign intervention undermines those institutions, that by providing aid in some way that we... No, because aid is too tiny for it to prevent it. Even in countries that are very highly aid-dependent, places like Rwanda and Ethiopia that receive a, a large proportion of aid? I, I would argue that but this, this aid-dependency thing is a complete myth. You know, again, it's the naysayers. I mean, dependent on it, Rwanda? No, they take a body blow. But, I mean, you know, while they're trying to build, um, you know, their institutions, and you could argue that Kagame has done a good job with Parliament, etc., etc., and you also have, you know, uh, what he's been messing around with in, in the Congo. So do you think it was the right decision for the British government to, yes, I do. to stop aid to Kagame? Yes, I do. There are lots of people who worry that we, you know, while while you have governments that are grappling with these things and sometimes coming up with what seem to us not only naive answers but really quite dangerous answers, that we should not be giving aid to those countries. That that just as you say, we you agree depends, that we. It depends should. on how egregious it is. I mean, you know, I mean, there's such a double standard applied to Africa as the Africans themselves constantly argue. We beg and we grovel towards the Chinese. You know, 13% GDP corruption. So people always ask about corruption. We're not Africa. giving them aid, right? Well, we were. We were. Until a couple yeah. of years ago. And we were giving India aid, and still are, until a mm. couple of months from now. Um, 
you know, and we have full diplomatic relations and um, we, you know, here's an autocratic uh, society unto the nth, our government to the nth, you know, complete human right deniers won't have it at all, utterly corrupt in their business practices, commercial laws, whatever they decide it is that day. We beg to get in. We say nothing. Why? Because it's in the interests of UK Limited or whatever it's called. Um, but the existence of double standards is not a reason to do the wrong thing. If if people think, I mean, you, I'm as interested that you think it's a good idea to, to suspend aid to Rwanda. So yes, you, it do does th- suggest that there's some level at which you think we have, you know, the the obligation to send the right signal. Over, uh, it doesn't make any. You've got to remember to that it doesn't make any difference to them. They are not aid dependent. You know, who's aid dependent at the moment? If it doesn't make any difference to them, why are we giving them aid? Because they're not aid dependent. But they require aid. Okay. There's a huge difference. Finishing up, you you talked about the last 28 years from a personal point of view. Presumably you didn't imagine that this would be something you did for the next 28 years. No, it bores me to death. So why, what is it about, because a lot of other people who've got involved in celebrity pop songs and things have done their pop song and moved on. And you've stuck with it. What, what, what is it? What still draws you into this? Why are you still involved in this issue? Why haven't you just walked away? Because, um, because you can see things changing. Were it just futile, you just stop. I mean, you bang your head against a brick wall. Eventually, you, you've just got a mushy forehead. You know? But it turned out the brick wall is malleable. It was made of some other material. And so you push, you push, you articulate it. And that's the only advantage that we have. You articulate it. Speak truth unto power without question. Speak truth about power to those who need to be told about it. And so, you know, people say you're compromised. No, I'm not. I haven't once been compromised. I'll say exactly what I believe to whomever. And if you don't like it, cool. I mean, the common currency must be, oh, fucking get off and tell you what can. Yeah, he's a camp, but I'll be fair enough. You know, I mean, that's got to be it. Part of the job is to co- provoke arguments in the pub. I mean, literally people get bored of me saying, are they, how do we get them to talk, how do we get them involved in the pub? You get in a rowboat and you pretend you're going to row people over from millions of Germans and, and French are going to descend on Edinburgh. Of course they're not, but, you know, people laugh. and mm. So you get them talking, and it is that. It becomes vital. It goes into the home. I remember school aid. The issue was to get it into a kitchen. Get it into a kitchen so you see the connection between Hull and Harari. Get it in the kitchen. So that's it, and that's it. That's what we do, you know. We talk about it. We articulate, hopefully, sensibly arcane issues that only remain inside the sort of um, developmental vacuum. And within the developmental vacuum, it's to try and make the argument less than the echo chamber of your own prejudices. Bob Geldof, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Mm. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, from the Centre for Global Development in Europe. You can subscribe to Development Drums in iTunes, where you'll also find our sister podcast, the Global Prosperity Wantcast. Alternatively, you can play or download episodes of 
Development Drums from our website, developmentdrums.org. Finally, please visit our Facebook page to see which guests are coming up and to put your questions to them. And the feeling that it's hopeless Gets so huge it overwhelms But as we crawl through every hour So the days go round again Just the same But you know you